from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Swap podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 212 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. So, Craig, how are you today? I'm not doing too bad. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. So are you one of those Disney fans who are going on E-Trade, buying up Disney stock so you can vote out Bob Chapek at the next stockholders meeting? No, I am. <laughs> I'm definitely not. <laughs> I thought I always owned Disney stock. Like, I feel like when I was a kid, my dad invested in a bunch of stocks for my sister and I and chose like safe ones like Disney and McDonald's and, and that's so how I thought I was already a stockholder, but you know, no one's asked me to vote for anything. So, uh, maybe not, but I honestly, I don't care enough. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, the, um, I I didn't know that was a thing. I I saw something on one of, I don't know, a vlog or something that I, uh, that I listened to and the other talking about how Disney stockholders are doing that. And, and, um, I thought, oh, okay. I, I usually ignore my little vote thing that when I get it in the mail, so I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'll have to vote on this one. I didn't know you voted on keeping the CEO or whatever in the company in those. Yeah, I mean, everyone, that's part of your rightful you know, stake as being a, a stockholder. But uh, whether or not they do anything about it, that's a complete different case. So it's, you know, to me, it's one of those things. It's like for most of these people... Bob Chapek made them richer and granted Disney stock isn't doing as good now as it was last year, I believe around this time. Uh, Ultimately, eventually it will, it will rebound and go back up again and make lots of people money and they won't care one way or the other. So we're just, we've got to live through this phase. If you're unhappy about it, me, I still, he hasn't done anything to personally offend me yet. So until until he basically <laughs> insults my family, I, I could care less. <laughs> All righty. Well, it'll be interesting, interesting to see what happens at the next stockholders meeting. Yep. I might pay more attention to it than I normally do, which is like I don't pay attention to it whatsoever. <laughs> Except, you know, I, I'm always curious to know if the is it a lady who every year asks about when will so, uh, uh, Song of the South be released. <laughs> There's always somebody. And so I'm always interested, oh, are they there this year? To ask the question. But otherwise, I don't pay any attention to it. 
In recent years, Walt Disney Studios has employed well-known actors with recognizable voices to voice characters in her animated films, such as Robin Williams, Jason Alexander, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Rowan Atkinson, David Spade, Oprah Winfrey, Whoopi Goldberg, John Goodman, Samuel L. Jackson, and Eddie Murphy, to just name a few. You know, some people complain using actors with recognizable voices take them out of the film experience and would prefer Disney to use unknown voice actors. However, it may surprise you to learn that the studio employed well-known celebrities of the day to voice characters going back to their earliest animated feature films. Here to share some of those actors' stories is the author of the book Voices Behind the Magic, Spencer Wright. Spencer, welcome to Connecting with Walt. Oh, you're welcome. We're delighted. I read this book, and uh, this is this is the perfect book for anybody interested in Disney history. Um, if you want to learn a little more about your favorite actors and uh, who voiced some of your favorite films and theme park attractions, but uh, so Spencer, what inspired you to write the book Voices Behind the Magic? So I have a lifelong love of Disney and especially Disney history. And about seven, about maybe five years ago, I found myself with a lot of things that I had started to work on in terms of writing, maybe ideas for a blog or a podcast. And then I finally thought that writing a book might fit my taste well. Um, you know, it's a topic that you can sit with for quite a while. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting angles and material that hasn't really been covered before. And so, you know, one of the things I constantly came back to were the people who voiced, you know, characters in classic animated films, um, as well as attractions in the parks. You know, one of the things I've always been fascinated with is the idea of the character actor. So many of the people I discuss are character actors. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I'll just get started, you know, and, and see where it takes me. Yeah, and you know, Craig and I have discussed on previous episodes that character actors are really few and far between these days. So for our younger listeners, how, well, how would you define a character actor? Well, I'd say character actor in terms of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s is an actor who had a very unique either look or kind of role. Um, and generally, they were either on television, movies, or radio, maybe for a couple of scenes. Um, and oftentimes, they're what makes, you know, different shows and things memorable today or enjoyable mm -hmm. to watch today. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, they're absolutely fantastic. Now, a lot of times, and we'll talk about two individuals who fit this category, they're also the product of a much more shallow era. So if you didn't have certain matinee idol looks or if you're of a certain size, you weren't going to be a star in the past so and, yeah no oh, and many people made a career out of being character actors yeah and actually they even make careers better than the stars themselves because they could work up until the end of their lives yeah and i remember in the 60s you know growing up that there were television was filled with character actors and many of them went from television show to television show almost playing the same character type and it moved from the Andy Griffith show to Petticoat Junction to Beverly Hillbillies to whatever, doing the same basic type, looking exactly the same, but you always believed they were a different person. Yep, and they found their one niche. And a lot of times when on Facebook and things, when I see people discussing shows of the past, it's the character actors they remember most fondly. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, why did Walt Disney use uh, well-known actors and actresses to voice his characters rather than using unknown actors of the day? So, I mean, Walt Disney needed people to come in and do voices who they knew could come in and do the job well, um, and especially people who were able to sort of think on their feet. Um, you know, now animation is quite pervasive, but at the time, you know, voicing an elephant, for example, was quite an unusual task. You know, so he needed people who were versatile, who were experienced. You know, a lot of times people providing the voices were quite a bit older than the animators, you know, who were generally ran quite young. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of times early on, Walt found the voice actors by auditioning. And then over time, he did build up a group of people who he could use over and over. Absolutely. Now, we're going to discuss, just sort of touch on each of the actors and actresses you discussed in your, you discuss in your book. How did you choose these celebrities, these particular ones for your book? I started to put together a list and I ended up with a list of about 43 individuals. And then I ended up writing um, about 13. I thought that was a solid length. So I wanted to make sure I picked a mix of not just names that sort of everybody would know. You know, so I selected Angela Lansbury. That's a name that's still quite well known, as well as names that really are not like Eleanor Audley or Verna Felton. And then there's some that are sort of in the middle. So I think a lot of Disney fans are familiar with Cliff Edwards, for example. So I tried to pick a good balance. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the things that, you know, I looked at is, you know, range of movies. So different eras, make sure I have the diversity of movies, different kinds of characters. So as I was putting together the list, I found it was almost all villains. I'm like, I have to mix this up a little bit. Um, So it was really quite a balancing act. Yeah, and that's great that you have 43, because that means there can be, uh, you know, sequels to the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, (laughs) And I found that as I've spoken to people, I mean, I do cover the parks a decent amount, but there's especially a lot of interest in the voices we hear in the parks. Mm -hmm. So good. Good. Um, something to look forward to. Now, when we when we talk about some of these characters, these actors, what is what I found really interesting is you don't just focus on their Disney screen career or their theme park career. You go into their acting career before and after Disney, and which is fascinating. Some of these people led amazing lives. So we're going to get into what fascinated me with some of them was how young they started their acting careers. I mean, they were basically children. Some of these that you talk about. And then, and you also get into a bit of the history of the Disney films that they contributed to, which, which was, I found really interesting as well. So, so what we want to do, let's just touch a little on each of, each of these actors, just to give our listeners a, a bit of an idea what they can find in the book without going into too much detail, because, you know, we want them to buy the book. But, but um, Eleanor Audley, since you brought her up. Now, my introduction to Eleanor Audley were in two places. Uh, the first animated Disney film I recall seeing when I was a boy was a re-release of Cinderella. And so I recognized, so I knew her. But then when Green Acres was running, uh, when I was around maybe the same time, I recognized her voice. 
and thought, oh my gosh, this is this, this is the woman that was in Cinderella. So can you tell us a little about Eleanor Audley? Yeah, so she actually was one of the character actors you were describing who would come up time and time again playing the same kinds of roles. And so she described herself as playing what she called Mrs. Richwich. So a lot of these sort of dowagers, these sort of wealthier, high-minded women. And she had, I, I mean, I don't know how many hundreds of credits on radio and television. She was in movies somewhat, um, but she was mostly on radio and television. And actually, my favorite role of hers is she played um, Lucille Ball's mother-in-law on My Favorite Husband, mm-hmm. which was the radio precursor to I Love Lucy. But again, she's just so recognizable. She had this sort of crack in her voice. And she actually, her first role at the studio was Lady Tremaine in Cinderella. And that's a role where she auditioned. And then she went on to voice two other roles for Disney. Yeah, and then she, um, and then, and what was interesting is just the, the number of films that she appeared in as well. And but you also mentioned that uh, that she um, she first provided her voice to Disney playing the evil queen in a 1949 audiobook, even for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which uh, that which surprised me. Yeah, so I mean, she's really the queen of villains in a lot of ways. She also voiced Maleficent, and then while she's a little more ambiguous villain or not, also Madame Leota in the Haunted Mansion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where a lot of folks know her from, of course. So thousands of people hear her voice every day. Yeah, absolutely. She definitely lives on, which is which is what's what's exciting about this. So, um, but of course, because I always remember her as Oliver Wendell Holmes's mother in Green Acres. Yeah, yeah, she always had a fur coat. And her hair was always up, and she always wanted, uh, and she was always sympathetic, though, towards um, towards his wife. <laughs> yeah, and she came from that era of the 30s where the fur coat was, that was the symbol of wealth and refinement and coming up in the world. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, the next character you uh, talk about, I remember my parents listened to her, listened to her records, and she was on the radio. Peggy Lee with that just absolutely gorgeous voice. Yes. So she was a singer and songwriter. And if you, I mean, if you listen to any kind of mainstream show or movie today, you still hear her music quite often, um, especially a song Fever or Mm -hmm. It's a Good Day. And so she helped write the songs and provided several voices for Lady and the Tramp. Um, And I mean, she remembered it very fondly, but I can't imagine how nervous she must have been because essentially she walked into the studio and they had storyboards for Lady and the Tramp with the basic plot laid out and pretty much was told, go, Um, you know, put in a song where you can write a song where you can. Um, So I I can't imagine how nerve wracking that must have been. Um, But she's an individual who, you know, this was a time when they released animated films every seven years. And so in theaters. And so she helped, you know, she believed that helped keep her um, legacy alive and helped keep her famous is because every seven years, regardless of what else was happening in her career, which had its ups and downs a little bit, she could still maintain this, you know, popularity. Right. And, and well, and she was famous for when, the films went to home video release. 
she sued the Disney company, if I recall correctly, in order to get the rights, uh, in order to get reimbursed payment for that, even though it was never in the original contract, because who would have thought of home video back in the 50s? Right. So Disney tried to argue, well, it's a medium that did not exist. So it wasn't a transcription. Um, and they were unsuccessful. And it really, for her, was a pioneering move. You know, if it wasn't her suing Disney, somebody would have sued a different studio. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and I think one of the things that she still maintained is that even though she's suing, it's the corporate leadership that she has an issue with. She still loves Walt's, her work with the studio. Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the things that you wrote, you wrote about her childhood and her early life. And it really struck me as how similar her early life was to Walt's. They both had a very tough life, grew up basically on farms in their early lives, uh, had an had an association with railroads. I mean, it was really interesting. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, is they both had it rough, like on the farm and in, in a rural area. But they also a lot of times looked back on it fondly. You know, the simple life on the farm, you know, with animals relying on your own industry. Yeah, it really shaped them, that, that experience. Yes. Yeah. Now, a, a voice that we all um, recognize, and, and Verna Felton, I saw in so many television shows growing up, basically playing the same character. She's always, she was on, she was in all those homespun um, characters, uh, you know, shows. She was always like the neighbor, usually the nosy neighbor, the meddling neighbor, or, or something like that. But she was in so many movies and things. And, but, but she was in a number of Disney films as well. Yes, she was in six. And I think, so she was born in 1890. Um, and one thing that's important to keep in mind is that people were much sort of older in the past. You know, so she first came to the studio when she was 50. So, you know, in 1940, being a 50-year-old woman, you were a lot older. So I think she was always sort of stuck in these kind of older women, very tough but sweet roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, and it's interesting, the roles that she played for Disney, I won't give all of them away, but they're just such a wide range, the sort of sweet, maternal, and loud. Um, my personal favorite of hers is Flora, uh, the Red Fairy from Sleeping Beauty. Yes, yes. And it, but then she was sort of the matriarch elephant in Dumbo, who was very haughty, you know, and all that, too. And when I referred before, it's sort of like, you know, how do we voice an animated character? She kind of looked at the scriptures like, I have no idea how to voice an elephant. How does one do that? Um, so she just spoke the way she thought an elephant would talk. Yeah, and and... and so she, I think it's interesting too. She was named the honorary mayor of North Hollywood in 1960. So, so she. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the name now. There's a great picture of her breaking the ground on the hospital with Walt Disney across from the studio. Oh. Oh, the St. Joseph's Hospital. St. Joseph's Hospital. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So she was heavily involved in her community. So now in terms of the character actor from this era, she actually was um, quite a bit better to study because she had a very high public profile and she was quite active. Yeah, because I know she, you mentioned she was involved in a lot of charities and, and all that. So, but um, 
Yeah, but she definitely one that I still see her in reruns on early television shows and all that. So and she was on I Love Lucy a couple. So I got to watch lots of Lucy. Mm-hmm. She was on I Love Lucy a couple of times. That's right. She was. I forgot about that. Yeah. And then and then there's the sultry Eartha Kitt. Of course, I remember her being um, one of the many uh, cat women in Batman. <laughs> yes. And that's probably what she's most known for. Yeah. Um, and that was a role she loved. And then for Disney, she voiced Yzma um, up until the end of her life. So she voiced in The Emperor's New Groove. And really, her involvement with Yzma even predated it by quite a bit for the failed project Kingdom of the Sun. And then she voiced all the way into the Emperor's New School. And for me, this is where Disney Plus was a huge, huge tool. Um, Disney Plus came out maybe about a third way into my writing of the book. And I started to get a little nervous because Emperor's New School was a television show, The Emperor's New Groove. And as far as I could tell, it was never released on any kind of um, medium, like home video, DVD, anything like that. So it got to a point where I was like, if this isn't on Disney Plus, I don't know if I can really write about her. Um, but, you know, Disney Plus is a tool made it's so easy just to skip from one thing to another. You know, I could be working on my laptop and have it on my iPad. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We all do that. <laughs> so, but she was, she really started out really early in, in when jazz was just, um, you know, had its roots in Harlem. Yes. Um, she started back in the 30s and was a well-known singer, um, a well-known actress. And um, she eventually went overseas to perform, but then she came back. And so she, you know, remained active right up until she passed away in 2008. Um, so she's another one that if I need some music to get some energy, I go to YouTube and listen to some Eartha Kit. Yeah, and she really broke, she and like Sammy Davis Jr., they really sort of broke the color barrier. Uh, in their era. I mean, she was really a pioneer. I mean, she had, uh, you know, she had a show in Vegas. I mean, she really uh, was a remarkable woman. Yes. So for listeners who may not be aware, she was, she was half white and half black, but in the 50s and 60s, she would have been considered black or African-American. Um, so, I mean, the idea that in the 60s, you know, an African-American was starring on a television show, you know, I mean, that was a huge, huge step forward. Um, and it, like you said, also performing in Las Vegas. Um, mm-hmm. So she definitely took a lot of risks and was very resilient. Um, so I think she had that resilience and that drive to just keep moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And now um, the next one, all of us, we probably watch this, all of us Disney fans, every Halloween we watched The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, The Adventures of Vicabod and Mr. Toad. And of course, it's narrated and sung by Bing Crosby. Growing up, my family, we watched his Christmas specials every year and all that. And again, another crooner, very popular, you know, in the early half of the, uh, of the 20th century. Yes. And I think now, if you ever listen to Christmas music, you've definitely heard Bing Crosby. Um, and I was just mm-hmm. at Walt Disney World for my first Christmas season. Um, and I hear yours. I hear, I, I'm sorry, I heard his voice all over Walt Disney World. Um, Disney Springs, 
The cue for the Jingle Cruise, Hollywood Studios. Oh, yeah. White Christmas. You hear that everywhere. Yes. And on the the cover of the book, there's a picture of him recording Mele Kalikimaka with the Andrews sisters. And when I was in the queue for the Jingle Cruise, that's the song we heard. So that was sort of nice. So how did he get picked, of all people, to to narrate, uh, t- you know, the tales of um, the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad? Yeah, so he was one of um, quite a few well-known musicians in the 40s who was selected to work on the different package films the studios um, created. I definitely wanted to include at least one item from the package films. So he was part of singers, some of which are known today, a lot of which aren't, like like the Andrews sisters or Nelson Eddy or um, Dina Shore. I mean, Dinah, I keep calling her Dina. Dinah Shore. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about his work on The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, you know, he um, narrated the section on Ichabod Crane, is he essentially came in and sung in the style that he had at that point for about a decade and a half. And he added a sort of lightheartedness to this otherwise dark story. So rather than creating something scary, it has a little more of a bounce to it. Um, and so, you know, these musicians like Bing Crosby and others were enthusiastic to work on the package films because it helped promote their work. And they were also part of a family friendly respect, respected brand. Right. Well, in those days, being associated with Walt Disney was huge. I mean, that just was a huge promotion for everybody. Right. And so they didn't have to twist his arm. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. But he's in so many great musicals. Not long ago, I just watched High Society. And um, there's just so many musicals that he was involved in. And all that. So he was an actor, a singer, a dancer. Uh, yeah, just an amazing, um, amazing talent. Yeah, so. and he's someone else who stayed, you know, in show business active just about until the end of his life. Hmm. Oh yeah, and, and yeah, was on television. Had a he had a television show for a while, and all that. And then they did uh, his. He and his family did the Christmas specials every year until he passed. So. He's one of the individuals, like most people in the book, that made me feel awfully lazy as I started to read all the stuff they did. Yes, I am. So. Now, um, now, the next one, Hans Conrad. Hans Conrad. I, now, I first got introduced to him. There was this obscure television show called Fractured Flickers that was on when I was really little, where they took all the silent films... And they like edited them together to make hilarious short films that were about all kinds of different things. And he narrated them, but also they dubbed in voices. And it was basically all the voices that like would go on to voice like Rocky and Bullwinkle, you know, and all of that. And it was a hoot. Even as a little boy, I loved it. And then I grew on that. But then I realized he had voiced all kinds of things. Um, through and, and appeared in, in a number of films growing up. Yeah, and actually, I, I was able to get Fractured Flickers for not a lot of money on DVD. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know it's pretty easily available. And yeah, so for Disney, he voiced Captain Hook, um, but he played a lot of professors, doctors. Like you said, he was all over radio and television. He um, 
you know, was one of those who I think was sort of shoehorned into being a character actor a little bit because he didn't have the matinee idol good looks that studio executives demanded in the 30s. Um, so he was definitely well known in his lifetime as a celebrity, but he's somebody that I think if he were born several decades later would be in, like I could see him having like a National Ge- Geographic show on Disney Plus now and really being a major, major star now. Um, mm-hmm. But he was one that worked like you said, you would have seen him all the time. Yeah, I remember in I Love Lucy, I think he was a I think he played a, he was like an art teacher or sculptor or something and trying because lucy got a got the itch to be creative when she was pregnant on the show and i think he was the artist supposedly that taught her how to sculpt he was an artist and a teacher and a lot of the roles he did on the radio show my favorite husband and then he did on because some of the scripts they just basically copied and then he did on tv yeah yeah and i remember when uh, again, when I was a boy, a uh, radio station in San Francisco replayed a lot of the um, old-time radio shows, like Suspense Theater, um, oh gosh, what, Lux Radio Theater. Uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned quite a few of them in your book. And, and Escape, yes. And, and he was in a lot of those back in the day. Yes, yeah, so maybe now I'll mention the world of old-time radio. Um, So from about the early 20s to about the mid 50s, radio was an integral, integral part of American life. So any kind of TV show we have now, any kind of podcast we have now, there were radio shows. So if somebody appeared on radio, it was a voice that people had, you know, people heard all the time. Um, It did continue past the mid 50s. But once television came around, the corporate sponsors shifted over to television. No, I was just saying, and a number of the actors that you talk about in your book, they had, they got their start in um, radio. Right. And the studio, you know, especially appreciated recruiting players from radio because they knew how to fill an entire character with just their voice. You know, so when Hans Conried voiced Captain Hook, he knew how to, you know, voice a character that could really fill a room, you know, and command a pirate crew. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then on television, he was the voice of the Magic Mirror in the Disney anthology series. He played that several times. That was an, I had no idea that even existed. That was such a nice surprise to discover. Um, yeah, but he voiced on some of Walt Disney's earliest television appearances. Yeah, yeah, I remember those. So, and then, and then, then we go back to Green Acres. Ava Gabor. <laughs> yes, it's the glamorous Ava Gabor. <laughs> yes, I just watched The Rescuers a, a couple of weeks ago. But you're right, she was very glamorous. Yeah, and she so she was part of a shift toward, um, you know, while people who had voiced characters prior were definitely known celebrities, she was part of a shift to almost a much more deliberate, like, okay, Ava Gabor is voicing Duchess in the Aristocats, so this character is going to much more reflect Ava Gabor. Like I said, it definitely happened before her, um, but with the Jungle Book and then the Aristocats, you really see a shift that I think is a little more recognizable to today, where you know a lot of times we do have these major celebrities, really just as part of their resume, voicing characters. Yeah, and she was, and she was in a number of films, though, as well. But and but I think most of us know her as Lisa Douglas, save a, save a, <laughs> on Green Acres. <laughs> so 
Uh, but uh, a great show for folks who haven't watched it. Of course, Arnold the Pig got more <laughs> got more fan letters than anyone else. So, but what uh, what I didn't realize though was that her family, um, they they during World War Two they um, remain in Hungary and they were they got through the Holocaust. Right. Yeah. They, I mean, they really had to struggle through while you know Ava was stuck here in the United States. You know, once the war started, basically transatlantic travel really wasn't possible. Um, you know, so pre any kind of mass communication, she really didn't even know what was happening to her family. Yeah. And the Gabor sisters, she had Magda and, and Zsa were sort of known for being in the news a lot for multiple marriages, especially Zsa Yes. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> yes. And she, she lived to be 99 somehow. <laughs> it was all that high living. and then our next one um well people will definitely recognize his voice if they don't know the actor's name and that's phil harris yes and so he voiced baloo in the jungle book and then o'malley cat in the aristocats um and then little john in robin hood so he was another individual who was really known for starring on radio Mm -hmm. he had a radio show with his wife alice Fay. I don't think she's as well known now, but in the late 30s and early 40s, she was one of um, 20th Century Fox's biggest stars. Um, She was sort of like a sultry singer. Um, And so what he brought to his characters was sort of this kind of rough and tumble side that you saw on his radio show. This sort of like hard drinking, tough guy, um, but still lovable. And he was one of those that he he left home at sixteen, and uh, and and ended up performing as a drummer in San Franc- in different San Francisco hotels, and all that. And that that boggles my mind. Yeah, especially some of them. I think back to like when I was sixteen, just leaving and going to perform and tour and, and everything else. Yeah, because then he he toured Australia, Hawaii. I mean, that's it's amazing. Yeah. So that that he did that. Now I knew him from the Jack Benny show. Yes, because Jack Benny had a television show, but they were rerunning the Jack Benny radio show. Still, in and that's when I got to know his voice. And yeah, and so probably for younger listeners, Jack Benny was probably one of the country's top comedians from the '30s into the '70s. Mm-hmm. Um, on radio, and then once kind of radio started to fade out, he went right to television. Yes, and and if any of you have watched Frasier, Kelsey Grammer based a lot of the mannerisms and nuances of that character on Jack Benny. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I'd heard that in an interview, and and he and a few times there are um, homages to Jack Benny um, in 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 the series. Yeah, and probably the big strength of Jack Benny's show is the supporting cast that he was able to acquire around him. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, just a lot of strong, funny characters. Yeah, and <laughs> it's almost, um, some ways it reminds me of the show Seinfeld a little bit, where it's more him kind of reacting to all these crazy people and situations around him. Yes, yes. I remember his, I think it was one of his final television shows we were watching, and it was... Um, I think he was on CBS, and they were celebrating 
his anniversary of his show, and they gave him the choice that either this could be the final episode, or he could get this star, and or get this car. And I think the the door was encrusted with diamonds that had a fifty. It, it was the number 50, and it was all outlined in diamonds. And because I think it was like his 50th anniversary of being in entertainment. And um, and then they said, okay, you have a choice. We'll give you this car, or you can continue on with the series. And and it was just so hilarious because he, as he was so torn. Do I take the car? Do I continue on with the series? And it was all, all it was, was all the humor was in his facial expression. And I don't think he said a word. Yeah, he was good at even on his show. Kind he kind of goes like, "Hmm," mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just very little to to get a laugh. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, but that's where Phil Harris came from. But of course, you know, we think of him as O'Malley, the Alley Cat, and yeah, Baloo. He had that voice, and he was a singer also. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, so he, and if you read the book and see any mention of an old time either show or episode, they're all easily available on YouTube. Yeah, because he performed with big bands, did he? And he had his own band, didn't he? He did. So he was a band leader. Um, and so you know what I try to emphasize is, is that you know to run a band was not a a small feat. You know, transportation, housing, unions, temperamental musicians. It was quite a you know required quite an astute mind. Yeah. Yeah. Now, again, another one where folks might not recognize the name, but they would know his smooth voice. And that is George Sanders. Yes, he was very much sort of the rogue and, and the classy villain of the golden age of Hollywood. Um, yes. So he played all kinds of tuxedo sort of villains. And he voiced Shere Khan in the um, Jungle Book. And a lot of the look of Shere Khan, the tiger, comes from his sort of expression and his sort of haughty manner. And the Jungle Book is really where you see this turn toward a very close resemblance to characters and their voice actors. Like you did see it before, but this is where the turn starts to get quite strong. Yes, absolutely. And he had a, a very prolific film career. I remember seeing him um, when I was a boy in The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. And uh, and then Rebecca. Yeah, and The Ghost of Mrs. Muir is probably my favorite role of his. Yeah, yeah. But he, but I, I remember reading or hearing that he, um, he could be, he was demanding and he could be a little difficult to work with. Yeah, I mean, I think he was always professional. But he didn't want to be bothered with a lot of details. So I, I think I read a couple things, but I didn't really was able to confirm it all that well. That this, you know, I think artists would try and especially just to sort of show off their work and be friendly, show them storyboards. And he's like, why are you showing me this? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Just kind of like totally unimpressed by everything. Yeah. In fact, roles he played. Yeah. And then what was so weird is then he then he played Mr. Freeze on the Batman television series. That just seems so out of character. It does. And I I never seen that series before, the Batman series from the 60s, and I knew it was sort of campy, mm-hmm. but I had no idea. It's very campy. I I watched it when I was a boy. Yeah. It it was it was like a, a an animated it was like a live action comic book. Yes. 
And then one that I'm sure everyone listening knows, Edwin, who just had the most unique voice. Yes. So he voiced the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. And he had that sort of um, simple, clean comedy that Walt really loved. Um, a lot of that sort of slapsticky type comedy of the teens in the 20s. Um, and Edwin is, was especially focused on always keeping it clean. Yeah. And he is another one. He started his vaudeville career when he was just 15 years old. He, you, in your book, he said he, he ran away from home. Yeah, his um, he came from more of an upper middle class family that was ashamed of him going into show business, so he actually changed his name. Oh, how fascinating! Yeah, and that wasn't all that unusual either, especially to be in like lowly comedy. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, he played in a lot of comedy. He had his own um, tel- own show for a while. So, um, and then, but then I remember. Re- oh, but then, okay, folk. It, then he, but he did some serious roles. Like he was in the um, Diary of Anne Frank. Yes, and he actually was pushed into more serious roles at the urging of his son, Keenan, mm-hmm. who played many villains in Disney live action film. Yes, yes, absolutely. Especially because Edwin, I mean, he was always funny, but he kind of had the same act. So after the first 40 years, it kind of starts to lose its luster a little bit. So it helped us to sort of diversify, you know, what he's doing. Yeah, and I do remember um, him saying that, I mean, he was always so loyal and grateful to Walt, because it was really Walt Disney who revived his career, because his career had pretty much, you know, waned. And it was Walt that resurrected it. Yes, I think one strength Walt had, especially in his live-action films, was using these elements of the comedy of the past, that a lot of audiences have kind of start to roll their eyes out a little bit um, and use it just enough that it's still entertaining. Because like I said, after 40 years, it's not as funny as it used to be. Yeah. Yeah, but he is it, you know, he's in Babes in Toyland as the toy maker. You know, he was in, I mean, he went, he moved into a lot of the, li- the live action, um, you know, films afterwards as well. Yeah. Yeah, and and he was on some of the television shows too, some of the, a couple of the TV specials too. So, but and then, and then of course all I have to do is say Thurl Ravenscroft, and all the Disney fans know what he did for the theme parks, but he, but people um, may not know how much he did really in film and in his career. Yes, he has dozens of credits either in the parks um, or in either in both animated and live action film. So the interesting thing about him was he had this very deep baritone. He's probably most well known for voicing Tony the Tiger. Mm-hmm. And so what he had said is he didn't necessarily have, say, the talent that Hans Conry did to do hundreds of different voices. He just had this unique baritone voice. And he was also part of a group called the Mellow Men. Um, it was a barbershop quartet, mm-hmm. so he either voiced as part of this group or on his own. And so whenever he got a call from the studio, he never knew what he might be voicing. Is it going to be some kind of animal? Is it going to be for an attraction? You know, it was always a surprise. And he's another one that worked well into his 90s. Yeah, yeah. And of course, what, what was interesting, too, is you got into his service during World War II and how he, you know, he 
what he wanted to be a fighter pilot, but he was too tall because he was six five. So he trained to be a navigator with Trans World Airlines, which was a huge airlines back at that time. So he's contracted by the army and he transported people and cargo across the Atlantic. But he like flew people like you mentioned in your book, like Winston Churchill and actor Bob Hope and all that. He made 150 round trips across the Atlantic, which probably wasn't all that safe uh, during that time. And, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, so, you know, these people all have backstories that you chronicle in your book that are absolutely fascinating that we, you know, people don't know about. Them. Right, and I especially chronicle either their backstories, you know, their life and career before and after Disney, you know, since we're getting further and further away from a lot of these decades, you know, in terms of, you know, connecting with Walt, you know, we're getting further away from, you know, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, you know, when I grew up, these sort of like the quote old people on the street could tell me about the Great Depression or World War II. Well, now there's grandparents telling their grandkids about going to see the first Star Wars movie. So yeah. it's important to still have that knowledge and context of the entertainment of the past. You know, what was life like in the past? You know, like you've pointed out, when it, people might go to work in their teens. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. It's just amazing. You also mentioned that, you know, there are a lot of roles that went that he did that were uncredited, like in Mary Poppins. He was a background singer, the the, uh, voices of the pigs in the Jolly Holiday scene. He was in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. He was an uncredited singer in various songs and his different animals. Uh, So it, it just fascinating you know that they they've done a lot of things that we really don't know about no and the same is true actually of both verna felton's husband and son who did quite a few voices for disney it's not 100 percent clear what voices they may have done um i mean luckily now with technology you can sort of try and figure it out mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. some of it we just may not know yeah and then and we know the next one you mentioned is cliff edwards of course we know him as jiminy cricket Yes. And so in the 20s, he was quite famous as ukulele Ike, um, especially performing on vaudeville. You know, he played the ukulele. It was a light instrument. It was inexpensive. It was easy to learn. So it was quite popular. And he had this sort of soothing voice, but it wasn't too quiet. So, you know, he could sing on radio without blowing out the tubes. You know, so sometimes Edwin had an issue with being a little too loud. (laughs) Um, but Cliff Edwards was sort of the opposite, and it was just the right balance. So he voiced Jiminy Cricket, helping to develop this character that could narrate a scene and get your attention, but then the camera could quickly pan away and move on. Yeah. And I didn't realize, too, like he was in, because I watched this a while back, um, His Girl Friday, because I'm a big Rosalind Russell fan. So I watched His Girl Friday. I didn't realize he was a reporter. In in that, so um yeah, because by the point he had, it was in his girl Friday, he had sort of gone from being a star to being in these more sort of quick supporting roles. So, but yeah, but we all know him. He's he's the voice of Jiminy Cricket. He's now that is someone who will live on, uh, definitely forever and ever. Because so. one of the biggest surprises I had in the book is I knew that Jiminy Cricket was used in voice by the Edwards was used in quite a few things in the ensuing years. I didn't realize just how much. Yeah, well, Jiminy Cricket was basically the spokesperson for the theme parks for the longest time. 
you know, they needed a sort of a secondary character along with Tinkerbell in case it wasn't a success. Exactly. Yeah. Roy did not want, well, if Disneyland failed, Roy did not want Mickey Mouse associated with a failure. So they had to go with the B characters. No, so they, so they went with their B list of actors. <laughs> I was going to say, so Disney Plus has a lot of shorts for Jiminy Cricket they need to be putting on. Yes, yes. Well, if they would ever just put back on the Disney Anthology series, you know, the whole, all of it, there would be a lot of uh, Cliff Edwards in there. But, and then finally, we all know this name, Mrs. Potts, Angela Lansbury, who was quite a, she was quite, we all know her, probably most people know her as the older Angela Lansbury. But she was a ravishing beauty in the early, in her early days when she was just starting out. Yeah, so she started out at MGM while it was still at its height, um, you know, and enjoyed a little bit of the studio system right before its decline. And she's still alive. Um, so I ended the book with her in part so we could end in the present. Because mm-hmm. um, I know so much of my time researching this book was spending time in the past. But I wanted to make sure we end in the present because she just voiced um, in very recently the sing-along in Epcot in the France Pavilion. So she never necessarily retired. She just sort of stopped working. Yeah, but they call her back for all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah and she apparently was... she's always quite enthusiastic. Yeah, well, of course, she was just in Mary Poppins Returns not long ago as the balloon lady. So, and then... um and then, and then, oh gosh, uh, of course, most people know her uh, for uh, Murder, She Wrote. Yes, and I think Murder, She Wrote still holds up pretty well. Um, yeah. So I didn't watch that too much, but, uh, but um, growing up, but I know it's now on streaming. And I thought, oh, that's one that I'm going to have to watch. And see, I, the the big joke when it was on the show was you never wanted her to come over to your house because you knew somebody was going to die. <laughs> and for her, it was almost a little bit of a curse because she, I mean, she was an active actress, but she was never necessarily recognizable. And then once Murder, She Wrote started on television, she really couldn't even go to the grocery store anymore. Yeah, yeah. But I, but she sort of, but she like on Broadway, didn't she originate the role of Mame? Yes, she did. Um, so I'm, it, it's a little bit different, but my favorite movie is the 1958 anti-meme. With Rosalind Russell? Mm-hmm. That one? Yeah. I think most people, and then there was the disastrous Lucille Ball version. But, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think most people associate, I think, Rosalind Russell with that. But and people don't know that it was actually Angela Lansbury. Who initiated that. And then she was in that, she was the mother, the evil mother in that, oh gosh, it's out of my mind. It is a great movie. The Manchurian Candidate. Gosh. And she was really only like two or three years younger, a few years younger than the, per, than she was, per, than the, um, of the mother of the actor she was portraying. Yeah. She uh, found this unfortunate niche sort of playing these sort of evil mother type roles. <laughs> She did, but boy, she was brilliant in that. When they remade it, nowhere near as good. Yeah. So I would say, yeah, if you want to see a really good thriller, uh, get Manchurian Candidate with Angela Lansbury in it. 
Um, oh, such a good movie. And she actually was someone who sought out a role to voice, um, sought out you know, to voice a role in a Disney movie, knowing that it was something that would live on forever. Oh, oh that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And you start to really see that with the Disney Renaissance, people knowing that another person who did that was Pearl Bailey, who voiced the owl in The Fox and the Hound. Uh-huh. And you start to see people knowing that this is something that could be another Pinocchio. Yeah, you do hear of actors that say that they, they've done a Disney film, so it's something that their children can see them in. Yes. And will remember them. Yeah, it's true. We do hear that more and more now. So, and, and that's those, that's just an, a, an, a tiny, tiny bit of the interesting stories that, that Spencer writes about, about all these actors and actresses. There is a whole lot more in there. And like I said, he also goes into, in the history of the films, their roles in the films that they were in. So it's a fascinating read. Um, now, as you were researching the actors and actresses for your book, Voices Behind the Magic, did you learn anything that surprised you? I had constant surprises. Um, one of the things I found was that I learned just how fragile the idea of the full-length animated film was. Um, it was almost under constant threat if each film wasn't a great success, um, just because it was so expensive. And it was something I sort of knew, but it was just this constant, if this thing isn't a success, then can the Disney studio even continue? Um, I found that to be true, even just learning about Lady and the Tramp. You know, Lady and the Tramp was released in 1955, being made the same time that Disneyland was going on. Well, if Disneyland wasn't a success, if Lady and the Tramp wasn't a success, or also if 1954's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea wasn't a success, the whole enterprise might just come crashing down. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes me a lot more grateful for what we have. You know, I mentioned Ava Gabor, who voiced Miss Bianca also in The Rescuers Down Under. Um, and that film was essentially not really given a chance by studio executives. Not at all. No, because it was released the same weekend as Home Alone. Now, if something ha so, and I think that was part of the issue with it not getting an especially impressive box office turnout. But if something similar happened to The Little Mermaid, that might have been it for Disney Animation. So it makes me grateful for what we do have. Yes, absolutely. That's a that's an excellent perspective. So now how can our listeners get their own copy of Voices Behind the Magic? It's available for sale on Amazon. I'm sorry, I can send you the link. Okay, and Craig will have that link in our show notes. So it's but it's available on Amazon and anywhere else? I'm just on Amazon right now. Okay. Great. Well, I if you found what what few stories Spencer shared about these actors, and you found that really interesting. You're going to enjoy the book, The Voices Behind the Magic, because like I said, he goes in way lot more about the actors and actresses and the films that they were in. So, and this is really, you know, this is history that is, if it's not captured, it's going to get lost. Because a lot of these are stories that just... You know, th nobody's writing about them. They don't make it into the big books. These weren't, you know, like you, you said in the beginning, Spencer, these weren't the big name A-list actors. So there aren't huge autobiographies on them and all that like they are for the A-list actors for the most part. So, you know, th it's great that there's books like this that capture their stories so that we get to know this part of Disney history. 
Yeah, and I would certainly encourage the reader to, you know, if you're reading a chapter, finish the chapter. And if there was a radio show you want to listen to, you know, I found especially the Aristocats and Robin Hood seems to be in movies a lot of people dismiss. You know, go ahead and rewatch it. And then after you watch it, pick up the book and keep reading. Um, you know, I certainly want, you know, it to be sort of a very interactive thing of reading and watching and listening. Mm hmm. Oh yeah, I'm I'm excited that some of these old radio shows are available. I had no idea. I have to track some of those down. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing the stories of these wonderful actors and actresses with our listeners on Connecting with Walt. And um we look forward to your next book and hearing more stories. Yes, well thank you very much for having me on. And now it's time for This Week in Disney History. So, Craig, this week you get to start us off. What fascinating tidbit of Disney history um, are you going to share with us today? I am going to share a fun little secret from Valentine's Day. I know Uh. it's it's too perfect to pass up. Valentine's Day, uh, February 14th, a beautiful day. So many meaningful memories, I'm sure, that people have to share. Uh, Mine is not meaningful at all, though. Uh, Mine is that in 1998, (laughs) (laughs) the Ghirardelli Soda Fountain and Chocolate Shop had its grand opening at Downtown Disney, which is now Disney Springs, obviously, in the marketplace here. And I, I know a lot of people out there might be asking, why do you deem this date to be important at all? It's Ghirardelli. It is a, a place that's like, hey, it's a good place to get ice cream, but uh, nothing spectacular. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I've maybe shared it once before, maybe not even on Connecting with Walt. But uh, it was actually one of only two places that I've worked at at Walt Disney World. And the other, of course, was Test Track that I've shared before. But I worked at Ghirardelli for, I believe, a grand total of two days <laughs> way back and then, in. And then uh, they transferred you because you ate so much chocolate. They didn't. So I'll just share the story <laughs> since I'm like kind of skirting around it. But uh, so my college program, I have talked about that before. I was asked to leave. <laughs> Very unpolitely by the housing people, not Disney, but the housing people. And I I went back to Ohio because that's where my family was living at the time and decided I wanted to come back to Florida. And so I packed up and moved just after Christmas and New Year's and got to Orlando in January of 2011 and found a place to stay with my college roommate, uh, college program roommate. And we, we got a place together and my sister kind of funded me. I think it was like five, 600 bucks. So that on top of my, uh, my, my savings account that I had, that's all I had to get me by for, you know, as long as I could without having a job. And so I was applying for places over and over and not getting anywhere. And finally, in, uh, in right around late January, early February, I finally got an okay from Universal. And that was like amazing to me. So I officially got hired at Universal on February 11th of 2011. 
And it was, I think that was my date. I don't remember it anymore. It might have been the 16th, but that's neither here nor there. That's for, uh, that's another, this date in Craig history <laughs> fact that I need to remember one day. Uh, but I got hired then for Universal and I was happy about it because I'm like, I have a job. It's, I'm now, I'm saved. I can stay in Florida. I can afford to live and eat more than, you know, noodles, like portioning out one cup of ramen noodles over the course of one full day and being like, ooh, so good. Uh, and so I, I have that job just fine, but I deep down I'm bummed out because I wanted a job with a Disney either Disney or Disney third party company. So that way I could get a, a green ID or, you know, if you work for Disney, you got the blue ID, but I wanted that ID so I could get back into the Walt Disney world parks. And, uh, ultimately I, I wasn't able to get any job with Disney because I was on their not do not rehire list for naughty the time list. being. Yeah. The <laughs> naughty list for a while. Uh, but I got a call from Ghirardelli and, it was, I think my first day was March 2nd, and it was a training day, and it wasn't bad. You know, they showed me, like, in the back stockhouse, like, where to, back in the day when you used to hand out the chocolates, you would pre-cut mm -hmm. them all. It's not like, you know, you didn't, not like now where you just hand out the chocolates and it's in the complete package. Uh, as a common courtesy to the guests, you would, you would, you would cut them so that way when they were handed them they just were able to easily rip it the rest of the way open and you know so it was a lot of that and learning like you know the ice cream stuff and being told like well you're you're not going to just start you know working at a register right away or scooping ice cream you've got to you've got to start from the ground up and do the bad jobs first and and work to it and it's fine with that. But then the next shift was the very next day. And I know it for a fact. It was my birthday, uh, March 3rd, 2011. I sat in the back of Ghirardelli in a back stock room and I cut open thousands of chocolates to hand out to guests over the course of eight hours. And I did not go back to work after that. <laughs> it was not not for me i was so happy at that point at universal i had been trained i was starting to make friends i was like this is not worth a disney id i will work my butt off and i will buy an annual pass and that's ultimately what happened so uh i <laughs> do not i do not have fond memories of my time at ghirardelli but mm. hey it's it's Cool to look back and see that on February 14th, 1998, that's when it had its grand opening. <laughs> yeah. Well, we would, um, I have fond memories of Ghirardelli because growing up in San Francisco, we would go to the original Ghirardelli Square and we would get the, uh, we would get the hot fudge sundaes and see them make the chocolate. And, you know, we would buy all their different chocolates that they had there at the counter and all that. And back in the day, they're, Sundays were named after um, characters in San Francisco history, like the Emperor Norton. Sunday was one of my favorites, Hot Fudge Sunday. And Emperor Norton, of course, was the Emperor of San Francisco. He was someone that lost all his money and basically went insane and declared himself the Emperor of San Francisco. He had his own currency, don't you know, that he would spend freely in San Francisco, and it was accepted by the merchants, and he was tolerated 
by the city uh, as the emperor of, of the United States. I think it might, I think he declared himself emperor some other places too, including the territories and all that. And when he passed away, he was given a state funeral wow. by the city. <laughs> so San Francisco honest. had its characters back. Pardon me? I was just going to say, I'll be honest, I feel like I'm doing life wrong right now just hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> so he he was quite a character. But so they named us Ice Cream Sunday after him. But they had all kinds of ice cream treats named after uh, famous figures in San Francisco history. So it was a lot of fun. So uh, I, I think they've since dropped most of those. And now they have boring names. And all yeah, that. Like, but yes, yeah, so I have a fondness for Ghirardelli's. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So I've I have a fondness for Ghirardelli. So it, I was very happy not, when it opened at Disney California Adventure. Yeah, it, it's not bad. Like it's it tastes good. Obviously, I I am just left feeling bitter towards it. Like if they would have put me in a more front facing role, like even the day of training where I'm cleaning off tables all day, like that was. That was wonderful because I was walking around in the sun and making sure everything looked nice and doing dishes. It was it's hard work, but you know it felt like an honest day of work. But sitting in a in a room with no windows, just boxes of chocolates, and pulling them out, cutting them, and putting them back in boxes, ugh, just not not for me, not for me at all. Yeah, but I'm, I'm happy with the that. choices I made. Obviously, I ended up here. Yes, absolutely. I'm happy as that, about that as well. Well, mine, it's funny, mine actually connects to the topic of our show today and talking with Spencer Wright about, uh, you know, films and actors and all that, because um, I chose February 15th, 1950, because that's the date that Walt Disney's animated feature film, Cinderella, is released. And this is Disney's 16th animated film. Of course, it's based on the fairy tale by Charles Perrault. And, uh, and of course, Eleanor Audley, we just talked about, is, is uh, of course, the evil stepmother, the voice of Lady Tremaine. And Eileen Woods is the voice for Cinderella. It's the first time Disney used uh, Tin Pan Alley songwriters to write the music for the show. Mike Douglas, who who had a he had a big talk show when I was a boy. He was the uncredited singing voice of Prince Charming, and um, but th- this was like Spencer was saying. This was a film that coming out of the war, and we've talked about this on the show before. Coming out of the war, Disney was in financial straits. The studio was barely going to make it and Walt threw everything they had into this film and he said in later years if Cinderella was not successful that was going to be the end of the studios and of course it was one of the top grossing films of 1950 it would be nominated for three Academy Awards Uh, like I said this is the first Disney animated film I remember seeing in a theater when it went on, it's, you know, films were released every seven years, you know, to a new generation of um, children, because we did not have home video back in the day. And, uh, and so, um, 
So I thought this this is uh this is the film that you know one of the films that had the potential of making or breaking the studio and luckily because it was so successful because they went back to the tried and true the princess you know the princess fairy tales that they had been so successful with that um it you know it saved the studio yeah so and and enabled Walt to f- build Disneyland and go on and do other great things. Oh, it's a fantastic, fantastic movie, and I, I think it's so. It, it's just so successful because it does have the perfect blend of you know dramatics to then also also comedic humor. You know, mostly mm-hmm. through all the mice, adding adding that nice little bit of humor in the way they go up against Lucifer, and it's just it all it all works out so well. And then having Lady Tremaine and the stepsisters being just so visually interesting, and a lot of the characters being visually interesting, except for Cinderella, <laughs> you know, kind of having like the the blankest look at all. It just it's it's visually distinguishable uh, between all the different characters but then how how they bring humor and how there is a sense of of uh, dramatics and you know at times you know just downright cruelness to to the entire story and how they treat Cinderella so it's just it has a little bit of everything and mm-hmm. I, that's that's important to make a, a lasting movie you know it's and that's not even talking about the songs that help make the movie too, uh, just just so wonderful, and why it's easily one of my favorites. Probably my favorite of that time period. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's a wonderful film, and it's you know I'm not a big fan of the um, live remakes of the animated films as we've talked about recently. Um, the the remake of Cinderella, I think, is a gorgeous, spectacular film. I love it. Just love it. And I think part of it is they were true to the original film and what they added to it that they took from the fairy tale. No, that only enhanced it. Yeah. And, um, the, and, and the dress is magnificent in that film. So, uh, so yep. just, uh, just, so both versions I really like. I, I agree. Yeah, I I love I love the uh, the remake just as much as I love the original. Lily James is fantastic, and you know it it, it dates this right now. But then it's also it's so bizarre to see her in her new Hulu show that she's a part of, uh, <laughs> Pam and Tommy. If you haven't watched it yet, uh, it's, I have not. Oh, it's a it's a ride to see her go from <laughs> Cinderella to. To this, I feel like it's it's the full arc you could expect of one's career over a lifetime, which she's just done in several years. Uh, oh, well, she's I'll fantastic. Find out more about that. She's a good actress. Yeah, I like she her. Is. Yeah. Well, Craig, since you do a lot of the reviews on the Disney Dining Show, there's one I have really been waiting for. There is a McDonald's. Over at Walt Disney (laughs) Resort there, Walt Disney World Resort. I am waiting for you to try that air, land, and sea sandwich. Yeah, I've... Been, I've gotten requests from it, and uh, I <laughs> I don't know if I can do that to myself. 
Yeah, it, uh, on paper, it sounds disgusting thinking about the flavors. Oh, did you see themselves. the photo? They didn't oh, even yeah. try to make the photo look appetizing. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't I can't do it to myself. But it is hilarious that you bring that up because there was one day I was driving past uh, on my way to Animal Kingdom and I, I drove past and I saw the McDonald's in the corner and I was like, I really don't want to go into a park right now, but I have to do a dining review. Can I get away with just going to that McDonald's? <laughs> I think you should. I really think you should. That could. F- I. I. When I looked at it, I thought you could break that sandwich up and make a three separate sandwiches for three people. Oh yeah, Bert, you know what? In even if you have like an un, uh, you know, not right ratio of bread and stuff, use some French fries to create your own bun. It's it'll be okay. <laughs> it's all going to I the think same place for, anyways. I think for three people, you have the right ratio of bread. <laughs> I, I, I tried to count it, but it's kind of weird. Besides the burger, all the colors just blend in with each other. Yeah, yeah, but they have the Big Macs. Oh, it just, it looks terrible. I mean, like I said, they did nothing to enhance the photo. No, no I just, I thought of you when I saw that. Thought, oh, you've got to go in there. Maybe an April Fool's review. That would be yeah. a great April Fool's Day review. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. If I can lose five pounds... And then, well, you don't have to eat the whole thing. Just with a knife and fork. They have plastic knives and forks in that place. Just cut a little piece. I I can't. I have to eat the full thing. It's uh. No, you don't. I I do. It's (laughs) something that it kind of harkens back to my story with when I, you know, when I first moved back down to Florida and I had no money and I was like, I was literally grateful. You're growing up in a depression and at 15 you you went on the stage in vaudeville. No, no, nobody expects you to eat this horrendous monstrosity. I Give know, it to I, some stray dogs somewhere. <laughs> I it's it's the worst thing about me now. I cannot leave food and I have to eat a full meal. If I if I pay out for it, I have to eat the full thing. I will take stuff to go, but uh, I don't I don't okay. ever ever send take, food. Take back. it to go and leave it somewhere <laughs> after you eat a bite. I'll, I'll see if I can find a therapist. I don't see a therapist, but I'll see if I can find one to help me with this situation. <laughs> okay. So, all righty. Well, you know, we've talked about the Galactic Star Cruiser in the past. And I saw, uh, on again, some vlogger that I, that I listened to is that, um, that, they were talking about the Galactic Star Cruiser costumes that are available in Shop Disney. So if you book passage on the Star Cruiser, you purchase costumes to go along with it. Now, first of all, what I don't get, I feel so sorry for the young actor from the Goldbergs who was in that terrible video because they all use this one image of him. The, have you seen the 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 fi- picture they use of his face? Oh yeah, with his you know, eyes exactly bugging. Yeah. It, it it looks like the my face when the doctor gives me a prostate exam. That, that, that's that's my <laughs> well, that's, that's the look on my us. face. It is. <laughs> and, um, and, um, but so so if you ever have the opportunity to go on this Star Cruise, are you? Heading to shop Disney and getting your robes and or and all that so you can fit in. 
Because you're a big, I don't. You are a big Star Wars fan. So how how deep are you going to go in on this? Should you have the opportunity to go? Yeah, you know, I think I'm okay to uh, dress up to a certain extent. It's just, uh, I don't think I will be able to afford to uh, dress up with the outfits that they are providing you know it's i i would i i guess i'm i could kind of look at it like if it's a one-time thing why not go all out with it and and really dress the part with it but it's i i i haven't even seen the prices i have seen the outfits and i saw that you know people who already oh i've seen the prices (laughs) what what it's a what is it roughly uh some of the stuff going it can go it can go anywhere from like sixty dollars to like one hundred and fifty dollars, depending upon that's how not, elaborate. Yeah, that's. I didn't no. think it was outrageous, but then there no. and then there is paraphernalia, you know, that goes along with it. But yeah, sixty isn't. If stuff was around sixty dollars, so that's that's generally the level that I'm comfortable with. The most I've spent on like a Disney shirt, I think, is seventy dollars. So. Uh, I I'm right around that level. Anything anything more is a little too extravagant with me. I I'm sure I could find a talented friend to put together a costume uh, for me that they can go to like Goodwill and find stuff and make it look normal at the last second. If if I'm lucky enough to get to go to Star Cruiser, which I do believe I I will be lucky enough to attend. Whether or not well, I can I'm talk looking- about it, <laughs> that's different. You can talk about it with us. It's just you and me here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if 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 I if someone from the Diz pays for me to go, I will be able to you know swing sing sweetly about it if I truly love it. But if it happens to be through a media thing, of course, our our stance we are, right. not, are not to review it. So. <laughs> Uh, which would be, it, I don't understand how I will be able to hold back from that, but so, who but knows? You could share if you like, I had a good time or yeah. something without, I'll, is there, is there a way that you can talk about it? And this is a serious question. Is there a way, because I, I, I understand our policy, but is there a way you can talk about an experience without reviewing it? I, that's, I mean, I feel like there is, and you know, this is one of the tougher ones like it's it's a lot easier to dictate like oh if if disney pays for your meal you know all at the very least all all you have to do is say disclose it at the front say yeah disney paid mm-hmm. for this but i i'll let you know how i feel like it's a lot easier when you're talking about something that's you know 30 bucks 50 bucks 100 bucks but when you start when you start talking it on a different level and and you're going all the way to you know five thousand dollars that's that's a lot that's a lot harder so i don't i i'll have to try to figure out a strategy to see if i can make it work yeah yeah and you of course it, it before you have that opportunity you'll have to read the halcyon comic book that's come out that i guess is the backstory of the ship i guess luke and leia we'll were see. on a <laughs> Okay, now if I buy the air, land, and sea sandwich at McDonald's, 
that means you don't have to eat it all because you haven't paid for it. We're going back to the first topic. So you could <laughs> taste it and do the review, but that sandwich really belongs to me. I'm just sharing it. And I don't want, and this isn't a ploy to be in the review because I have no desire to be, but, um, you could, then you could eat just a piece of it. And then I take it. And then what I do with it is my business. <laughs> I, I will see if I can make it happen sometime for you. <laughs> I, I will do my best because I think your review will be priceless. Just priceless. It'll be something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Oh, and then, and finally, you know, I, I got a Walt Disney World pass holder survey that I completed. And so I always like to share these because it lets us know what's in the mind of Disney. And it was all based on what, uh, what did I think I was getting a good value out of my annual pass? Did I like it? Did not? What did I find valuable in it? Were there options I did not find valuable or didn't know anything about it? Like there's one about it was some type of reservations that I knew bonus reservations or something. I didn't know what those were at all. And they talked about um, communications. Do I feel there's enough communications? Do I feel appreciated as a, a, a as um, by Walt the Walt Disney World? You know, as a pass holder. And then, you know, what, why, why not? What events, um, do I like? You know, and what, um, what of the benefits of the annual pass? What do I value the most? What do I value the least? And again, what did I had no clue even existed? And, um, you know, so that, so it was a lot. So it was all about that. That kind of stuff, which I thought was interesting. And then it wanted to know, do I hold annual passes at either Legoland, um, SeaWorld, or Universal? And then did I have any intention of buying annual passes at any of those places? And then also then, do you know, how long have I been an annual pass holder? Do I intend to renew? My annual pass, why or why not? And they, these were all options, but there were places you could enter comments. Like if you gave something a um, lower review, they wanted to know why. So then there was your opportunity to say, why did you not feel valued or, or something like that? So I, I did have a couple of places where I was able to enter my, um, you know, my thoughts. And all that. And I was very courteous. But there were, there were reasons why I said I did not feel valued as an annual pass holder. And, um, and, and, and so anyway, so that was basically, then of course they wanted to know, you know, when was your last visit? When do you expect to come next? You know, things like that. And then all the demographic stuff. What, what, um, streaming services do you subscribe to? And it wasn't just the Disney owned ones. They want to know about HBO Max and, you know, others as well. Apple Plus, um, Apple TV Plus, whatever it's called. And then, um, oh gosh, what else? Oh, the, about, oh, then the usual about, um, what other memberships do you have in there? And basically I'm able to check off everything except that I'm a cast member and I am a, um, 
you know, I'm a Club 33 member. Otherwise, I'm everything else. You know, AAA member and Disney Magic, Disneyland Magic Key person and DVC member. You know, all the stuff they list. Yeah. And then, and then that was pretty. And then the usual demographics: age, how many children or people in your household, and you know, all that kind of stuff that they always ask. And so that was it. So, so it was interesting what they were looking for. Um, oh, they did want to know what I thought of Genie Plus and Lightning Lane, too. That was there. Were, there were a few questions about that as well. So, um, anyway, so so it was so it was interesting. And, and did and did I like this version of the annual pass compared to the old version, the previous version of the annual pass? And all that. So, and, and they wanted to know if I added in photo pass and, um, oh, what's the other add in option? There's two add ins. Can't remember the other one in there. If I, if I added those in and, the and, and they were both then, yeah. water parks. Yeah. Cause I was saying they're both things that used to be a part of it. That was part of my comments and, uh, and all that. So that was the annual pass. That was the, that was the pass holder survey. And in the beginning, they ask, we want to make sure we get a well-rounded, um, you know, from, you know, well-rounded response. So they ask, do you belong to any of these industries, right, for any of these companies? I learned from the last time, don't select any of those. Yeah. Because if you do, you they immediately say, thank you, we're done. Yep. So <laughs> I just said no. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was it. So that was the annual pass the Walt Disney World annual pass holder survey that I took. Very neat. Yeah. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on all the different shows I'm on on the Diz Unplugged Podcast Network, and then always on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Teleclaster, and email Craig at WDWINFO.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages, Michael at WDWINFO.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz, and you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or disunplug.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.